Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. In this session, writer, director and producer Boa Fraser shares insights into his creative process and how it has changed with his diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Thor speaks with writer-director Paula Fetu-Jones about growing up in England, making his way to New Zealand and connecting with his Fijian roots all while creating stories and discovering what mana oaha means to him. This session is presented by Henry. We're just talking backstage. This is truly our most fearful thing in the, in the world, is to, people looking for tours Parkinson's and staring at me in a wheelchair that, that we couldn't have. It's, it's the most fearful thing, so we thought we'd just sit here and stare at you. Or we'll stare at you. Not that we can see much. And that will be our talk. You can just stare at us and we'll stare at you. But no, that will... It's a long hour of us doing that, isn't it, Tor? <laughs> so very, very happy to have Tor with us. Tor and I have known each other for a long time, but it's been a long time in between coffees, and um, he didn't know I ended up in a wheelchair, and I didn't know he had Parkinson's, so it's like, oh, we need to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, mine is very visible, of course. I could, could hardly hide this, so even though I... After I got out of the hospital, I used to wear my, um, you know, my hospital thing for a long time after I got out of the hospital saying, you know, I'm, I'm still in hospital, I'm in hospital, I'm in hospital. It was still ages after I got out of hospital because I did not want people to think this was me. Um, and yet it took a long time to get over it. But um, Tor is a, a very well-known and well-respected director. And um, he is of Fijian and English descent. You probably all know about, about him, so I won't sort of talk about that. But Tor, do you want to talk about what you're doing now? Yes, thank you, Paula. And uh, thank you very much, everybody, for coming and being here today. Uh, I am debuting the uh, cane that I got from the discount pharmacy in St. Luke's today. Cane. <laughs> um, okay. My little raco. $12 Arco. And, you know, I was thinking about it and, and saying uh, to myself, I uh, embracing my grandpa today. You know, my inner, my inner granddad. And then saying that, I realised that my granddad actually did have Parkinson's. My grandfather, granddad Jack Fraser from Mount Roskill via us. Uh, Lavuka and Fiji. And with that, I also feel like it's relevant to say, maybe we'll call it the theme of the, uh, the discussion today. You don't know what you know. And uh, if there's anything that my uh, short career has shown me is that um, you, don't, you don't know what you know. Well, this is true. We don't know what we know. And, uh, but we are constantly told what we don't know. Uh, so that uh, could be helpful. So <laughs> you were born into a creative family with very visionary parents. Um, films in your blood. Your Fijian dad worked for the BBC. He very, talks very posh. Why don't you talk very posh? Thank you, Paula. Welcome. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes. Uh, it is a question that my posh father has been asking me since I was about four years old. 
although uh, it changed significantly. My, my voice changed, or rather I should say, I changed my voice uh, very significantly when I met my extended uh, Fraser family in, uh, in, in the Pacific. And um, yeah, I mean, voice has been a major um, you know, part of my journey, I guess. You know, my dad grew up in, he was, he was seven when he left Fiji and apparently didn't speak English at, until that point. And uh, I guess, you know, in the 50s in Mount Roskill, which was kind of the sort of whitest place in the universe at that point, um, he aspired to uh, uh, other stuff. And the legend goes that he used to hide under the house, you know, sort of working class family, I guess, hide under the house reading books because he didn't want anybody to know about it. And uh, he would sneak off to the ballet at the Civic, actually, and, uh, and watch uh, Gis- uh, a Russian production of Giselle, which uh, has got an interesting circularity. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he learned to speak English so well that he got offered a job at the BBC in 1968. And uh, in that sense, you know, he's a real sort of uh, trailblazer and path opener for uh, so many of, uh, of, of our generation. Similarly, my mum was uh, on the same, a similar sort of buzz. She grew up in a quite... Well, very conservative family in Essex in England. And uh, she was uh, told to wear her school uniform when she wanted to go to the Beatles and stuff like that. And kind of broke out of that environment to go work for the BBC. She was uh, on Radio 1 the first day that that... Uh, sorry, she was a sound technician. Worked on Radio 1 the day that Radio 1 started. And... Um, she also liked the musical South Pacific. <laughs> and uh, then one day, through the window, the uh, glass, as they call it, with the little green light, there was a representative of the uh, very, very... South Pacific. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Listen to that recently. There is a line in it about Bloody Mary that says... Her skin is as supple as a baseball glove or something. So quite an old-fashioned uh, sort of thing. Anyway, so they, uh, they, they uh, formed uh, a, a happy union and, uh, and me and my brother and sister were born in England. I kind of hated it at the time, and um, especially when I got to go to high school at 12 years old, wearing a suit and uh, carrying a briefcase. And I don't know if uh, you all remember the, the, the blindside flanker for England, uh, Tim Rodber. He was the head boy at this particular school, which was uh, a school that was actually... Man, I'm ranting, Paula. No, you just keep Sorry. going. <laughs> I'm just going to... You're I'm at just, school, you've got your suit, you've yeah, got your okay, thank you. you just keep going. Right, thank you. Thank you for uh, the catch-up. And uh, went, went to school there. Tim Robber was the head boy. He was... And uh, I didn't like it much. And it was a, a great satisfaction to me when uh, in the 1995 Rugby World Cup, Jonah Lomu smashed him. 
And you reveled in this, and you've never looked back, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I was just going to finish the rest of my question, but I was intrigued by what was going to happen at school. Um, So you obviously grew up, England is your motherland too, right? Um, So you came back to New Zealand at what age? And when did you first go to Fiji? Hmm. Uh, It's a bit of a, I try to to keep that on the sort of, like a little, like not quite specific Paula generally. But uh, I was 14 when I first came here, actually almost 15. So I had quite a, um, you know, a lot of uh, English uh, experience. And yeah, I didn't really go to Fiji until um, I guess around 2000 when um, Teresia Teiwa and Larry Thomas uh, sort of made a bet that... uh, no, this is a this is a deep rambling one. Larry Larry made a bet that if Fiji won the sevens, uh, he would invite me to US to University of South Pacific. So I ended I ended up there in that two thousand. I, I want to go back to what your world looked like when you were fourteen, which is quite an impressionable age. Mm-hmm. And you moved you went to Mount Roskill when you came to New Zealand. Yeah. So how did you fit? <laughs> your English ways. You said you had quite a lot of English ways. We don't know what that means. <laughs> so how did you fit? How, where did you fit? Where was your... Would you find your tribe when you got to Mount Roskill at 14 years old? To uh, tell you the truth, my cousin Barry was the one that uh, really embraced me. And he was like this toughest, staunchest kind of hero of mine at that point. He was like four years older than me and he uh, invited me over to his house in Shawwell Street to do bench pressing. (laughs) And I had never done bench pressing before and then, you know... With your suit and your briefcase? It wasn't, there was was no bench pressing at uh, (laughs) Church's College. And yeah, and then a day later I couldn't raise my arms and um, and I guess those, those, those... that particular branch of my family were um, they they uh, embraced me and uh, I you know I guess it was a lot to do with um, admiration and um, love for them that I kind of ended up staying here for as long as I have. Yeah, I think we all need other a Barry, don't we? When we're feeling a bit like out of sorts, go Barry. Barry. Where's Barry now? Barry is in West Auckland. He's um, just 10.50. Oh, nice one. <laughs> um, so, yep, grew up in England. So you've spoken a lot in your previous interviews that I've seen about your disconnect with your Fijian roots. I want to know how that informs your storytelling. Like, number two is obvious, right? But from number two on, how have you maintained your uh, indigeneity, I guess, mm. within your storytelling? Thank you for asking it's, um, it, you know, with number two, it was, as you say, it was like really obvious. And I guess Bear, my first play in uh, 1998, shout out to Morgana O'Reilly in the <laughs> wings, who uh, performed the same play. How, how much later was that, Morgana? Ten years later. Ten years later. She does tap dancing too, apparently. <laughs> 
I was, I was, I was, just, I was going to segue. I was just yeah. saying that backstage is one of my favorite places. <laughs> Haven't been backstage for a long time. And uh, one of the last times that I was there was in uh, 2009 when Morgana and I were, uh, in, had the great uh, privilege to collaborate with a whole lot of actors and technicians on a production of the same play, Bear, the, that we did for uh, the Christchurch Earthquake mm. Appeal at the time. And um, I guess that play is like laid out. Everything in that play is, you know, what I say, you don't know what you know. Because as I'm looking at this plastic cane and, um, you know, making decisions about my career today and um, what sort of projects I want to work on, mm -hmm. the central character of that play, Venus, who Madeline Sami played originally and Morgana played subsequently, she was saying all the shit that I'm saying today 20-something years ago. And, you know, I feel grateful that that play just sort of felt like it fell out and I, mm. didn't, I didn't really have anything to do with it. I didn't have much craft at the time. It was just something that happened. And similarly with number two, although with that play, you know, Madeline Sami was such an um, integral part of that show and the... Um, the storytelling, it, it was another one where it just sort of fell out and I feel grateful for that. It was a diff different thing when, you know, I was trying to adapt it for a movie, but that's something we might talk about later. Yeah, well, you, you, you say that you were sure that you wanted to make the movie and that you wanted to write it and you wanted to direct it. Mm. Where did that come from? Like having... Your, your certainty, what you were 20, how old were you, 20? 23. You know, the, the good thing about being 23 is no one can tell you anything. So you're just going to, you know, we listen differently. Us of an age, we know we listen differently <laughs> when we're 20 than we do now. But what was, what made you absolutely certain that you were meant to do this? Why didn't you give it to someone else to do that had more experience? Uh, that's a, that, that particular question is, uh, is, is, um, Something that so when when the play number two was successful, uh, you know I got a lot of a lot. I got a few offers from um, you know various producers in New Zealand, and um, none of them were encouraging me to direct. And uh, you know went down the track of talking to some really esteemed and awesome directors, but. You know, I didn't want to hand over the, the reins in that way. I guess I'd sold the option on, uh, on Bear, you know, a year before. And, um, you know, it was pretty awesome at the time. I got like three grand and, um, you know, bought a stereo. And, uh, As we do when we're 23, yeah. I, I remember sitting in the backyard of Mount Ross School with my cousins and saying, I'm, this is when Tupac had just died, so they weren't mm. really interested. But yeah. anyway, I... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I told them I'm going to write this play and I'm going to hold on to the rights and I'm going to make a movie of it. And it took a long time. Interestingly, when we came to cast it, Ruby Dee was, uh, was uh, kind enough to come here and honour us with her mm. presence and, and performance. And she was friends with Tupac's mum. Yeah, no, well, that's it. And so did you ask to direct, you know, did you say that you wanted to direct to these, these producers? 
no. 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 It took a long time to be able to say that, you know, uh, thank you for the offer and the interest, but um, I actually want to do this myself. And I was fortunate that, uh, you know, I, I um, met the right people, Lydia Livingston and Tim White and Philippa Campbell. Eventually we all came together and, um, and, and made, made that movie in the way that I wanted to in Mount Roskill on the very side of the, the mountain just around the corner from the very state house that we were talking about the day that Tupac's mum died. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great for the community because, uh, you know, we had a feast at the end of the movie and, uh, and we did this over several days, so we, we needed to uh, have a lot of pigs. So uh, the pigs got uh, distributed to... Uh, the neighbours. Yeah, that's cool. So we're going to fast forward to Sweet Tooth and um, you secured the role as um, producing director. That is not a thing in New Zealand. So can you tell us a bit about what that meant, what that means? Uh, yes. So Sweet Tooth, you know, I feel incredibly grateful that um, I'm, I'm able to work on this beautiful show in Aotearoa uh, with my friends and um, and also, you know, to do this really uh, significant job on that show. You know, I'd been travelling around sort of circus-type vibe for the previous couple of years, doing a lot of work in in the States and in Canada and, um, and, and to be invited back uh, to... to do a you know long term job that was incredible was uh, such a such a beautiful thing which I'm very grateful for the producing director role if um, I guess you know it's something that grew out of Hollywood uh, I guess maybe in the last twenty years or something where uh, the studios and the unions and various creative people felt that it would be good to have somebody other. Somebody was one of one of the directors, basically uh, looking at the whole season and the whole show. And you know, in terms of Sweet Tooth, particularly, I kind of was, you know, support I guess to Jim Mickle, the showrunner, and uh, to all of the directors, and to try as much as I could can to uh, foster their vision of the particular episodes. And also, you know, try to sort of guide it with my own uh, creative um, impulses and and ideas and uh, guidelines. What specifically tour in there? In, in ah, Sweet that's Tooth? a great question. There is a lot, actually. Yeah. How do I answer this? I mean, really, obviously, Sully Moore in uh, episode six and season one, you know, was something that I was kind of aware of on the sidelines. And, you know, my, in, in this role, my, uh, my feeling is it's better to try to play it like uh, the Fijian Sevens team, sort of, <laughs> you know, sort of all stealth and backtrack. But with that particular decision, you know, I was really able to... Um, encourage Jim to, uh, it, was, it was Jim, it was, I, I should take no credit for it really because it was Jim's idea, but you know, it, it was a um, very nice opportunity to be able to uh, 
create a role for a Pacific Island actor in, 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 in that show. Yeah. And, um, you know, many other little little things. I mean, the, the, main, the main thing for me is that here is a story about a kid that has got a foot in two tribes, I guess. He's half human and half deer. And um, his whole story is a quest for belonging and identity. And, um, you know, in that sense, I feel a strong... Yeah, most of your films, I think, by Giselle, but even Giselle could be argued, you know, we could argue that that's a story about belonging, but all dance around belonging. So what does belonging actually look like for you and have you found it yet? Hmm. Uh, So, you know, on the one hand, you know, I love meeting, like, people that I've worked with at the airport in Vancouver, or Albuquerque or something, you know, running into a stunt performer that I work with on one show and running into an actor that I work with on another show. And in that sense, it feels like, you know, that sort of travelling circus thing is is really uh, my vibe. And I should say going into a bank in LA and saying, uh, I want to open a bank account, and they and them saying, what do you do for a living? And me saying I'm a filmmaker, and they're like, "Awesome, here's here's your account," which was not a not a not a experience that I'd had in Auckland when I was doing it. <laughs> Despite the option. Um, having said that, you know, one of the things that's sweet tooth, and I guess the pandemic has gifted me, uh, along with other people. Uh, other people have gifted me this. I feel like so, so, somebody said recently, "Oh, he's been all around the world, and now he's come home." And uh, I feel very strongly that that is um, that is the truth. I'm living in a state house in Mount Roscoe. Two generations later, it's not a state house anymore, but um, you know the whole uh, sense of being back in the community mm. that I love is uh, very, very powerful. So you had to go away to come home to be home, I more guess. or less, yeah. And, I mean, that's the kind of the gift that the pandemic has given us. Is it's made us actually have to look at ourselves and what's important and that we can still do what we want to do and love right here. It's true. Um, and the previous the NZFC thing just before has, has told us that we can. Um, so we need, we know about your successes. You're a very successful director, writer, director, producer. Tell us about your failures. No one sort of likes to talk about their failures, but I want to know your failures and how you dealt with them. Hmm. Thank you. Welcome. Confrontational (laughs) question. I'm a doco maker, (laughs) so I'm all about this stuff. Uh, I'm just going to... Angle my chair. Yeah, angle chair. Let's get comfortable. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like just about on every project I've failed in some way. And um, actually, it reminds me of a story. I went to uh, the, the, the countdown in like Manurewa or somewhere a long time ago and I had a black eye. And uh, I went to buy my things and the, the person behind the checkout said, did you fail? And I was like, 
what, what are you talking about? And she said, again, did you fail? And I realised that she was saying, did you fall? But I uh, didn't understand. And there's this great book uh, by Father Richard Rohr, the, 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 the priest, called Falling Upward. Please don't let me get lost here, Paula. I'm, hey, I'm already in New good. Mexico. Um, <laughs> Falling upward, and he talks about, you know, failure and falling down as a thing that we all need to experience in order to uh, move uh, forward forward and into more maturity. You know, there's some really obvious things, I feel like, um, in terms of representation and my, uh, my input, I feel like six days was an experience that... You know, the movie's awesome and I'm really proud of it and all of the people that worked on it and all the action and, and all of that stuff. But with that particular story, there was a way to tell it from the point of view of the incredible Fijian soldiers, Sekunaya Takavesi for one, uh, you know, who were part of the assault on the Iranian embassy in 1980. And indeed my dad, who was broadcasting on the BBC, and we've got a recording of him announcing that uh, event you know, I feel like um, I would love at some point to revisit that story from a from a, a Pacific point of view. And I, and and um, I met I met Takavesi in uh, in uh, Her- Hereford when I when I was doing research on the movie, and it was a great honour to meet him. What were we talking about? Oh, failures. <laughs> and. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things that is really sobering about filmmaking, especially, you know, in the role of director, you end up failing every day. And I guess it's, it's, it's a broad uh, answer, but it is, um, it is... I guess it's not the failure, though. It's how you recover from it. Mm. So, you know, yeah, we fail every day, but how, did, how do you recover from failing? Well, I was going to say you get back up again, but um, you don't always. And um, one of the interesting things about the Parkinson's is that, you know, a lot of people talk about fighting the disease and it being like a battle. And, um, you know, and then there's other people that talk about it in more sort of... um, terms like releasing into it or um, handling it or living with it. And I feel like that, um, that sort of dichotomy is something that is pertinent to your question about failure too, that um, knowing when to fight and when to um, absorb and accept is one of the things that um, I have... Yeah, yeah, well, well... Rescue me, Paula. Sorry, I'm... well, yep, like, yeah, put your cane down. That's when you know when to fight. Mm. Totally. Um, and I hear you. <laughs> I, I hear you. Um, so, you, Parkinson's, you were diagnosed five years ago and you kept it a secret. Um, you said that, that um, you put it out into the world because you wanted, you were asking things of your actors, you know, vulnerability and to be open, mm-hmm. and you felt that you needed to lead by example. But um, that's their job. So 
Why did you decide at that specific time to, to tweet such a personal reveal to the world? Because it was a big reveal. Mm. What was it? And we're going to call um, the Parkinson's his coming out because we don't really know what to call it. So how did you and when did you decide the moment to come out to the world about Parkinson's? Uh, it was a, you know, long process and, you know, I feel like I, well, I know that, you know, I definitely had symptoms a long time before the uh, diagnosis. So when I got the diagnosis, I was very grateful in a way because, you know, at least now I had some knowledge and I was able to manage it better than I had been up until that point. There did come a point, though, when I realised on Sweet Tooth Season 1 that I was really hiding you know, when I started my career directing, I was with Leon Nabi, you know, on number two. Respect to Leon for his beautiful work in your movie, Paula. Hey, Leon. And uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the greats. And, you know, it was um, really me, the, 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 the process, the workflow was Leon operating, me sitting beside the camera, the actor, you know, Ruby D, who, you know, many of the other great actors in number two, literally, you know, a, a very small intimate triangle. And, you know, there does come a point where you realise on some of these shows that the, there's like nobody by the actors at all. It's, you know, the camera's on a remote head and the DP's operating with the wheels and I'm stuck behind a monitor somewhere. In the case of Sweet Tooth, with a mask on, and uh, and 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 also hiding my uh, my PD, so um, I just felt at that point, you know, I've got to sort of break this for my, myself. It's something that I needed as much as um, you know for for, for them. Uh, but also, you know, just in general terms, it was um, it was causing me pain to um, to keep it hidden. I. Um, I, you know, felt physical pain trying to hold on to it. So, um, you know, in so many ways, it's been uh, a blessing and uh, the right thing. You know, no question that it feels like the right thing to have done. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to that. And I'm grateful to all the people that have supported that decision and uh, have come into my life um, again, in some cases, because of or, you know, partly to do with that um, coming out. So the, the stress of, like, letting that secret go has been lifted, but now you have more stresses because you've become the face, you know, as I've become a, the diversity, you know. Um, you're now the diversity face as well. So um, how do you... We don't like the word cope. How do you... Um, deal with you've got a you've got a whole different lot of stress now because we're open to the world people can see people know so how do you how do you deal with that and and what do you need people to do well one thing that i do is a lot of push-ups and bench presses with barry yeah it's yep. related to the bench presses with barry yep and uh you know, I guess one of the things that has been a really interesting thing to note with the PD and my, my owning it, of it is that, you know, for a lot of movies, well, a lot, I mean, for, for, there, there was a very clear line of 
movies, Giselle, The Deadlands, Six Days, where I was really, this is all prior to my diagnosis, I was quite obviously asking the world or the universe for some sort of athleticism. I wanted to uh, work with the greatest dancers in the world, some of the best martial arts practitioners, some of the world's best stunt people. And um, being around people who are able to complement my, uh, my skills has been one of the most important ways that I have, I guess, uh, lived with it. The push-ups also is uh, something that, you know, I've learned a, a, a sort of really sort of dumb way, but has been a beautiful thing that, you know, on Sweet Tooth Season 2, for instance, people would see me doing push-ups in the car park or in meetings and join in. And um, I didn't bring the video, but there is, an, there is a really beautiful, incredible... There's one great video of Christian Convery doing it, the lead actor, but also... Um, the whole crew. So one lunchtime, Lynn, one of the ADs, came up to me and said, we've watched you doing push-ups. We want to do them with you at lunchtime and we're going to do this. And uh, 200 people, however many. Did I say 200? Yeah. It was, there's a lot of people on that show. There's a lot of people doing push-ups. Who's doing the work? Who wants to do push-ups? That's a good question. <laughs> Partly why I haven't yeah. uh, brought the video today. <laughs> Has there been any, like, surprise reactions to your coming out for you, for you personally? I think in general people have been really supportive. I don't feel like there's been negative surprises. I guess I can't think of a specific example, but, you know, the surprises are when, you know, people express solidarity with my story and uh, one of the... One of the lovely things and one of the responsibilities is when people have heard me talk about it and um, reflect that their father has it, but they don't tell anybody about it or similar sort of things. And it has been wonderful to, um, to be able to listen to some of those stories. How do you work differently now? I do a lot of push-ups. Yeah. Um, but also... I, you know, I, I always, and I guess working with Leon, you know, he gave me a real strong, we were, we were shooting on film with number two, 16 mil, and, um, you know, the idea of efficiency and clarity and uh, not wasting stuff, I feel like that philosophy has really uh, become a major, important, majorly important part of my filmmaking now even more, that um, I need to be super efficient and clean and simple as much as I can. And, um, you know, I feel like it's really important for me to wrap on time or early if possible. And, um, you know, I don't, I, not only do I feel like that's kind of a moral obligation to the crew to wrap on time, but it's just like real necessity that... Um, I gotta get the yeah, I gotta get the fuck out at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. With with um sort of in the film industry, we in New Zealand are slowly starting to see a change when it comes to diversity with regards to training and, and employment of people with diverse needs. Do you think this change has been meaningful? 
And actually, what did diversity look like to you before Parkinson's as opposed to now? Mm. I mean, one thing to say is that I feel quite disconnected from the, the coalface of the New Zealand industry and there's people that are working a lot harder and doing such great work in this field than, than I am. And, you know, I do feel like I've got a lot more to contribute to that conversation. And it's not just the people that are doing it now, it's the people that have been doing it for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. You know, I look at the finalists last night in the, in the WIFT uh, Pacific candidates, Lisa Tuoma, Simara Riley, Nairi Fuata, and Kerry Wakia. You know, these women have been doing this stuff for, um, you know, for, for at, at the coalface for a long time. And, um, and it's changed the opportunities for people like me and, uh, and the younger generation. Quinton Hitter, for one, you know, he's speaking tomorrow. You know, he was, he was, I remember we used to watch My Time on Saturday mornings mm. in, uh, you know, a flat in, in uh, Auckland University. And that, at the time, it was like, holy shit, this is something for us, you know? And um, we, you know, our, our, our flatmates, we all used to sit around the Tanoa, the carver bowl on Saturday mornings. And, 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 and that, was, that was an incredible thing. And... Um, you know, to see the way that the, the industry has changed for people like us since then, you know, and respect to all the people that have done that. Um, you know, now to the point that my daughters can see themselves on screen in a very, you know, in the, in the case of, uh, of Talanoa and Hero, my two daughters, they can go to see your film and actually see their mother on the big screen. You know, that is an incredible thing for them. And, you know, Talanoa just assumes that that's something that she's going to do. She was in her first uh, web series recently, Here If You Need. And um, she plays uh, the kid umpire in that, Nikki Sulepa's daughter. And um, she's hilarious. And it's a wonderful thing. I have just gone on another sort of no, no, very... No, it's like people have come to listen to you, so it doesn't really matter what you say. Gonna, <laughs> really? Gonna, absolutely. Um, following on from uh, the WIFT Awards, Lisa Talma has just sent a question in. Oh, yeah. Yes. Hello, Lisa. Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. It says, um, speaking about voice, you've worked on so many amazing international productions. Do you have plans to work on your own stories in the near future? Hmm. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much for the question, wherever you are. And uh, yes, I do. And uh, you know, we have, we have actually, we have been, we have been talking. I think Lisa knows the answer to this. <laughs> um, uh, so we'll just keep that one on the down low. But also, do want to say that one of the most exciting filmmakers that I've come across in my international and national uh, travels is Matasila Freshwater. And uh, yeah, I would love to support her and many others in, um, in, in their, uh, their plans, such as they may be. I have another question. This is exciting. <laughs> um, would, what would you like to see from the next generation of Pacific screen artists? I would love to see us do whatever the hell we want. 
and uh, not just tell stories that other people feel like we should tell, not just stories about broken homes and, uh, you know, people fighting each other and not to say that fighting each other is not a fun uh, thing, you know, because uh, as we've already sort of touched on, uh, you know, my cousin Barry uh, sort of, oh, shut up. Uh, But yes, you know, we can tell all kinds of stories. One of the things that, you know, I loved about the Deadlands was um, having the opportunity to uh, be inspired by my friend, Peli Hawafa, who... um, you know, in his in his in his work, he talks about the 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 ocean being large and a connecting thing, not an obstacle. And um, you know, he 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 said that we when we told story when our ancestors told stories, we told them on a big scale. You know, he's got a story about a, a, a guy throwing a javelin that went so far around the world it came back and hit him in the back. And, um, you know, that's just one example, but I feel like I've said it already. What, what, one, one story about Apelli. He was at the University of the South Pacific when I was writing the first draft of number two. And it was a great place to write that because every morning I would uh, have my roti curry parcel and uh, fall asleep on the floor after a little bit of writing and await the knock on the floor from the, the guys down below inviting me to the cover, 11 o'clock cover drinking. And then I'd go back to my office and fall asleep again. Occasionally, Sima would come by and, uh, and, and, and look at the script of The Godfather that I was reading and say, what is that trash that you're reading? Um, uh, and anyway, Apelli picked me up on the, the day that I finished the first draft in his ute and we went for a swim in a waterfall near his home and we sat talking through the night. I remember his cat uh, was called Tojo and he loved his cat because it was named after the baddie in James Bond, Goldfinger. And uh, it was uh, with no small amount of... Uh, fear that I told him that actually the baddie in Goldfinger was called Oddjob. <laughs> <laughs> that is my story about Apelli Health. <laughs> One of the greats. Felicita wants to know what advice you have for an upcoming filmmaker. You know, it sounds twee, but just do it. You know, and it's obviously easier said than done, but, you know, I think one of the most important things, as you've kind of alluded to, Paula, is, um, you know, don't wait for permission. Just own... We, we, we have the absolute right to tell our stories and to use our voice. In fact, one of the things that Ruby D said to me was, you have to use your voice or somebody else will use it for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, a kind of a twee answer, but I, I feel like that's important. Just do it. Well, it's not really a... a with, with technology the way it is, anybody can make anything, right? And platforms are all over the place. So, you know, like you said, don't ask permission, just, just do it. Tell the story that you need to tell. 
Eighty wants a super specific question about sweet tooth. It's a much bigger budget than local productions. How many minutes a day? How <laughs> AD, oh, how many eps per block? How long is maybe <laughs> just cool <laughs> just be cool to gauge what size that production is compared to New Zealand productions. Huh. Just I'll just do the end bit. It's funny because as the projects expand still feels like it's, what do they call it, gone with the wind in the morning, Dukes of Hazard in the afternoon. Those are all filmmakers that are laughing. <laughs> aren't they? Because they know. We've got 10 minutes. Yeah? Yeah. No, no, we don't have 10 minutes. Oh, right. It's like oh, the yes. Dukes of Hazard yeah, stuff. Yeah. We've got 10 minutes before wrap and then it's overtime. I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't. So I guess on seasons one and two, we did one episode. We didn't do blocks, so it was one episode. It was single episodes. And um, I guess part of that was to do with the fact that the show, although, you know, uh, uh, we did work to create sets, Nick Bassett and his team uh, worked to create sets that we could return to through the season. Having said that, you know, the story is about a, a, a kid on the road. So um, the... The, the, it just suited us, I guess, to do single episodes. Um, in terms of minutes, I guess we would really think that 10 pages is a lot and probably wouldn't do that. I, I don't know. I feel like maybe five pages a day. How does that sound? Does that sound... AD, how does that sound? That, do, do I sound like an arsehole when I say <laughs> that? What was the other bit? The size of production as compared to New Zealand productions. You haven't worked on a New Zealand one for a while, have you? No. So he only no. does big. He doesn't know what little is. <laughs> I, um, I am always surprised by the size of the uh, transport uh, department. For your big there productions are, there, or there is, for New Zealand productions? There is, there is a lot of trailers. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't have said that. Why do I feel like I'm going to be in it's trouble now? Nah, they'll forget. It's fine. Um, Thomas is, um, well, growing up, what art or and or artists inspired you most? Excellent question, Thomas. You just saved him, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. We'll, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, my grandmother, my English grandmother, who I loved, uh, and she loved me and she loved movies from the, like, 30s and 40s. Uh, she took me to see Raiders of the Lost Art when I was six and uh, it was one of the most formative experiences of my uh, little life at the time. You know, all of those, you know, as a kid in the 80s, late 70s, 80s and all of those big movies were uh, incredible. And actually only now... You know, only only now that I feel like I've got a bit of craft, you know, I am able to look at some of the things that uh, they were doing in Raiders of the Lost Ark and admire them and really aspire to them. And not particularly the big stuff, but this is a sidetrack maybe, but anybody remember the scene with Denham Elliott and Harrison Ford when he's... Uh, Denham Elliott comes to his house and says, you, we, we got it, you're, on the, you're doing a mission. And it's, you know, could be like a really boring, this is the mission scene, but it's like this incredible one shot that, uh, you know, you re can now really appreciate the choreography uh, in. 
subsequently, especially when I was at the University of Auckland, you know, filmmakers like Spike Lee became really important to me. And, um, you know, obviously he has been a massive inspiration uh, on my career, especially with my first film, Number Two, which, you know, had major similarities to uh, Do the Right uh, it was inspired by Do the Right Thing. And, uh, you know, it was all set on one hot summer's day in one location. And obviously Ruby Dee, who played Mother's Sister in that movie, blessed us with coming to Mount Roskill and, uh, and, and sharing that. You know, it goes back to that thing of we should be able to tell whatever stories we want. You know, I've always uh, talked about the... Um, I think it's Walt Whitman now. I feel like it. Um, I might be wrong, but um, the the phrase "I am large, I contain multitudes." You know, my dad always talks about being the shark that swims in different waters, and um, you know, I feel like it's really important for us to say Raiders of the Lost Ark can be a big influence, and uh, Do the Right Thing can be a big influence, and encompass as much of the, of the of our experience and other people's experience as we can. Yeah. What else should we talk about? Should we just look at them? We could. Should we just look at them? Uh, I, if I, I do wanna... that, I'll see uh, people. the people that are sleeping. And, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Probably don't want to do that. No. Um, we could talk about the rugby. I don't know anything about rugby. I don't, I don't know anything about the rugby anymore either. It's uh, shocking. My last question that I have on hand um, is, has your tribe changed now? Yes, it has. Is, is that in relation to the PD or in... in... PD means something completely different to me. Mm. <laughs> it's not Parkinson's disease. When I keep saying PD, I'm like, I, that's like periodic detention, isn't it? <laughs> Like, I'd never realised that. That's good. Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah. Producing director. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I go straight to periodic <laughs> detention and you go producing director. That says a lot about <laughs> us. No, I'm, I'm just talking about, you know, it, it's huge. What mm. you, and we hate, we've discussed this, we hate people telling us we're brave and we're an inspiration. And we know it's, it's, it comes from the heart, but we're just doing our jobs. And um, you, you want to... Do you want to talk about that or should we not talk about that? I love that. I love that you say we're just, we're, just doing our, we're just doing our job. Which we were doing before. Yeah. And we're still doing now. And one of the things that I have really come to uh, enjoy being able to say is that, you know, when people say you're a really successful director, I sort of, I feel like the, the more appropriate... Um, what do you call it, adjective or whatever, is to say that I'm a working director. And I am so proud of that. You know, I guess despite the odds, I have been able to, and, you know, acknowledging my parents and all of the others that came before me and created the opportunities for me, I am so proud of the fact that I can say that I'm a working director. And, um, you know, I know that that's uh, not, a, it's not a common thing. And um, I feel like that is the answer that I can think of at the moment. Paula. <laughs> 
Okay. What is what does your world look like now? What what what's your day? My, like when you're not working. My world is very small now compared to what it was at the beginning of 2020. At least once a week, it involves a walk up Mount Albert and uh, along the Oakley Creek Pass. Uh, You've just told people how to stalk you, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the only one, but, um, you know, I post enough of that stuff anyway. It's um, not really a... <laughs> A massive secret. Although, if you're up at six thirty or earlier when uh, when we do this, um, you you will be able to join us <laughs> um, and observe the ducks and all of that stuff. It, if I'm working, it has involves going to Manurewa, which uh, is uh, is uh, you know again, it feels like a blessing to be able to. Go on the motorway and uh, and go to work and go to an office that is uh, very uh, clean and uh, and to work on this incredible project. Um, it also involves a lot of exercise, a lot of exercise in the middle of the night, uh, four o'clock this morning, for instance. Does anybody else think it's weird that it was seventeen degrees at four o'clock in the morning? I don't know that anybody else was up at four o'clock in the morning, but we'll take your word for it. Especially going outside at four o'clock in the morning. Yes. And, you know, that's to do with the yeah, Parkinson's as well, you know, the need to move. Um, you know, my day is conversely uh, a lot shorter, but a lot longer as well. It also involves... Uh, my children and their, uh, their, their, you know, it's such a joy to be able to uh, be in one place and to be able to foster that. It's also really uh, clear that the pandemic has changed a lot in terms of uh, routines with the kids. Yeah, we've got another couple of questions. This is exciting because it means we don't have to think about stuff. You just need to answer the questions. So... Tiakahurangi says, when you say don't ask permission, just do it, what is your thoughts about kōrero regarding cultural story sovereignty? Mm. What are your thoughts regarding yes. um, cultural yeah, sovereignty story? Yes, that's a really, really, um, really good question. I guess, you know, I can really talk from my personal experience of doing that and, you know, really... There, there are obviously two films that, um, that, that I've done that specifically touch on that, one being number two, the second being The Deadlands. Both of those movies, I felt like I needed to square my relationship with the story and with the uh, community that that represented. And with number two, I guess I felt like a, I, I, I had some authority based on my personal uh, relationships with people from Mount Roskill and from that community. It was a big decision to cast that movie in a way that was, A, you know, casting Ruby D as a Fiji matriarch, but also in terms of casting a sort of pan-Pacific group of actors in uh, roles that were not necessarily that. 
And, um, you know, I don't, I, I kind of feel lucky in the sense that Twitter wasn't a thing at that time. <laughs> and uh, I don't even think Facebook was. So, you know, I was sort of uh, able to, you know, do that quite a lot with those conversations. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we would cast that movie the same way if we were doing that today. And then you then you ask yourself, well, how would you cast it? And um, I don't know the answer to that. With the Deadlands, you know, that was th that was a project that I feel like I got invited into and was grateful for the opportunity to be. Uh, was grateful to have that invitation. Uh, and, you know, certainly I was um, aware of the uh, responsibility that that uh, story held. And, um, you know, I needed to do some quite serious thinking about how to square that with myself. I guess, you know, part of it does go back to, you know, the... Um, people that I was able to hang around with when my dad was working at TVNZ in the 90s. People like Fayingata and Kingi Ihaka. And uh, having, um, having had those relationships with uh, those inspiring uh, leaders of that generation, I felt like a, you know, small... Uh, uh, permission, I guess. But, you know, I was also of the frame that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't take an opportunity like that again. You know, I feel like that was, it was important for us to do that. And now that it's um, made uh, real, it's, um, it's something for me to hand on to others. Does, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess what does your, I mean, you talked about Whaingata and um, Kingi Ihaka, but what were the actual conversations within the production for um, your being able to tell mm. the Deadland story, being that it was completely in te reo Māori? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really, uh, really strong question. I, you know, and it's... I guess it's really easy for me to name drop and say, you know, Tainui Stevens was vital in that um, that conversation. Um, I I I don't feel like we we ever came to a complete answer about that. And um, I guess one of the things that I felt that I could contribute was kind of a you know the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing and. Um, and, you know, we talked about it being, you know, like the Apelli, name dropping again, but the, the Apelli Haofa thing of, you know, this was an opportunity to tell stories like our ancestors would have told if they had all the gear that we got. And, um, you know, I feel like my contribution really was um, to be able to bring the pop culture thing and... Um, and, 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 and work with others to, um, to create that. But, you know, I definitely don't feel like it was um, my movie. You know, I feel like it was a movie that uh, a lot of people made together. And it was so much fun.
Yeah, that looked like fun. We did uh, we did a boot camp, you know, at the beginning of the the, the production, but also you know casting Lawrence Makuade was a big move. You know, um, he represented that character so well, but he wasn't in great physical shape. I'm sure he won't mind me saying so. And I wasn't at the time either. And uh, one of the things that we did was commit to training with each other for a month in advance of um, the main boot camp. It was one of the most intense training periods I've ever experienced with Josh Randall working in his back cave on Surrey Crescent. And, you know, this goes back to that thing of not knowing what you know. You know, at the time, I really needed that, not knowing why. And uh, it was an honour to be able to do that with Lawrence. I will never forget it. Another story about Lawrence. But um, I did a movie with Peter O'Toole at the start of my career. And um, Peter O'Toole called me into his green room on the third day of working with him. And he said, uh, I'm going to teach you something that David Lean taught me. And at that point, I felt quite scared. And he, and, and he stood up and he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, look into my eyes, what do you see? And I was 30 and green. And, uh, and I said, I don't know, Mr. O'Toole, uh, generosity? <laughs> and he said, light, you see light. Light the actor's eyes, they will love you for it. And that was one example of one of the great pearls of wisdom from one of the great... Uh, one of, the, one of the greats of cinema. A few years later, I was doing this movie with Lawrence Makawaide, and we were shooting at Piha. And at the time, I'm sure, again, he won't mind me saying, but he was, uh, he was struggling, and he was a little unsure of what he was doing there, whether he had permission to be there doing it. And uh, it was the day that Peter O'Toole died. Kath Thomas told me when, uh, when we got to the beach, far end of North Piha. And, uh, and, you know, as we did every day on that uh, production, we stood around in a circle at the beginning of the day. And uh, Tainui said a, a, a speech about Peter O'Toole, you know, paying respect to, to him. And I felt moved you know, this is knowing what Lawrence is going through at the same time. I felt moved to tell a little story about Peter O'Toole, where at the London Film Festival, I called him the Great Dane. And at that very moment, a Great Dane bounded across the beach to Lawrence and stood there by Lawrence's side for an incredible amount of time. Lawrence, I remember, looked at me and was like, no question about it, it was Peter O'Toole coming to Piha to give his support and guidance and uh, mana to Lawrence, Lawrence being named Lawrence. It was a beautiful moment. I hope that's... Uh, sorry, I interrupted somebody clapping. Uh, <laughs> Is it... <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's really funny because Māori tohu are like fan, you know, fan tui or whatever we look for, but never a great yeah. dane. Like, seriously, a great dane come running over in Piha. We look the for odds? the little things, you know, oh, that's that. Oh, never a great dane, but that's awesome. So um, on that note, 
look out for the Great Danes because um, that's a sign that you're doing the right thing. Uh, thank you so much, Tor, thank for you. being um, so open and uh, engaging. You didn't waffle at all. So I said everybody came here to listen to you. So. Thank you very much, everybody. So we're just going to stay here while yeah, everybody well, leaves. Right. I was going to say, we're um, going to watch you guys leave. <laughs> thank you, Tor. Thank you, Paula. Amazing. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.